The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, and if you want to follow along in the notes that have been provided in the bulletin, uh, you are welcome to do that as well. We're going through the book of Corinthians. For those of you that are visiting and haven't maybe haven't been with us, Paul wrote that the Apostle Paul uh, preached in the city of Corinth and gained some disciples, and then he uh, had more and more disciples, and then he formulated a church and established a local church there, and he pastored it for about a year and a half, and then he continued to go do more church planting. And he had been gone two to three years and heard news of this young, new, struggling church, the church at Corinth, these saints there in this very pagan, secular uh, city, kind of like San Francisco is for us today. And Paul was hearing word that they were having problems in their congregation, and they lacked leadership apparently. And so Paul needed to attend to some of their problems as quick as he could, quicker than he could actually travel there. So he sends this epistle, which for us is 16 chapters long in English. For Paul, it was probably it wasn't written in chapters and verses. It's probably just this really long scroll on a, a dried leaf of papyrus, or whether it was animal skin, we don't know, or a couple scrolls put together. But it was intended to be one letter. Today, the way we write letters to people, you go from beginning to end, and that's the way it's meant to be read and understood. And so that's why we're going through Corinthians as a letter, as Paul intended it, starting in the beginning, dear Corinthians, and then it, it, he goes through to the end, and we've been proceeding through it. We've gone through the first four chapters of Corinthians, and I've given the outline. My, my outline uh, is pretty simple. The first four chapters, Paul deals with the unity in the church actually the lack of unity, and then now transitioning from chapter 5 to 7 where he deals with purity in the church, or morality, however you want to say it, moral purity in the church, and actually they struggled with that, and we're going to see that, and then chapters 8 through 16, the theology of the church. Those are general guidelines, but they're pretty helpful because that's kind of the way it flows. And so today we're transitioning into a new topic but not totally unrelated to the first four chapters. They are totally related, um, the unity and purity issue. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to deal with verses 1 through 8 together. They have to be taken together. can't really be separated again because we want to preserve the continuity of what Paul is addressing, all of his argument. Actually, all of chapter 5 goes together, uh, 1 through 13, but we don't want to go too fast either because he does emphasize a couple of different points. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Uh, the sermon there I, I called Immorality in the Church. And that's that's what he's dealing with explicitly. He's going to deal with immorality in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And uh, sometimes explicitly so. I'm going to read a section at a time. I broke it up into four points here. Immorality in the Church and just four points of emphasis that I wanted to highlight in Paul's discussion here. We can't cover everything, but some main points. As I come to chapter 5 and think that the Apostle Paul, okay, this is the church that an apostle started. This is a church that an apostle pastored for almost two years. And not soon after it started and began to grow, it's got some major problems in this church. Division and now sexual immorality. Unspeakable uh, sexual immorality. And for me, that's just a great reminder um, 
that's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It is so realistic. It doesn't candy coat anything. It doesn't hide anything. It's not this uh, purely fabricated, pristine religious book that doesn't have any problems with a utopian view of reality and humanity and pie in the sky kind of thing. It's dealing with real people. So from beginning to end, starting in chapter 3 of Genesis to the last chapter in Revelation, you've got problems. Horrible problems. And almost embarrassing ones. Uh, compromise, yuckiness, division. Um, and here we're confronted with that in chapter 5 in the church. So the topic is immorality. And I'm, I'm just going to warn you of parents of younger children from now until... March and April, as we're dealing all the way up to the end of chapter 7, especially the beginning of chapter 7, just in dealing with Paul's terminology and words and concepts, if you're uncomfortable having your second grader in here as we go through this passage, that's at the discretion of the parents, and we'll provide something, children's church, additional weeks or whatever we have to do if you wanted to excuse your children during that time. I'll warn you ahead of time, too, on specific topics we'll be addressing so that you can consider that what is best for your family at that time. But we can't um, skip it ignore it and go to a different chapter and oh this is too embarrassing and oh you can't say the word immorality the literal greek word is porneia look at verse one it is actually reported that there is immorality there is por porneia literally this is what paul's saying it is actually reported from first-hand witness that there is pornography going on in your church in our church among the saints and so that's a very delicate, sensitive, personal, intimate topic. Yet it needs to be addressed. It's a reality. And so that's, that's the Bible. It just deals with reality head on. And it's honest. And the church, unfortunately, throughout, if you, you know, study church history, the church has always been schizophrenic about how it's going to deal with uh, morality, immorality, sexual intimacy, uh, sex in general, all the way from... Uh, the two gross extremes of going into too much detail and legalistic views about it to totally neglecting it and not talking about it at all and just shying away and not even addressing clear passages in Scripture that we need to hear, that the people of God need to hear, that the church needs to hear. It's right here. It's almost in every epistle that Paul wrote, one degree to another. So uh, it's a realistic view of humanity that God made humans in His image and then they fell into sin, and we are fallen, sinful human beings. We are weak. We are frail as we come out of the womb. We are finite. And human beings are created as sexual human beings. That was God's design. That was His beautiful intent. It was a gift from Him to humanity that sex would be enjoyed as a gift from Him in a proper and pure context. And the problem is, is that we have all been short-circuited because of sin, indwelling sin in our own sinful wills, and we have compromised the beautiful, precious gift of sex that God gave to humanity. And as a result, uh, we as humanity end up in sexual compromise and sexual immorality on a grand scale and also on an individual scale, and it's part of our lives. And we can't ignore it. We can't hide it. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed. Uh, it needs to be confessed. It needs to be diagnosed. It needs to be encouraged. It needs to be given the right solution. It needs to be providing accountability uh, in this area, especially for believers. There is an answer. It is in God's Word. It is in the Gospel. It is in the Holy Spirit. It is in the community of God's people. It is in a forgiving God. So sexual immorality, sex in general, physical intimacy, 
uh, can't be ignored as many times we do. We just shy away from it. I don't want you to raise your hands, but I've, I've done this recently with different groups, usually with men that I'm working with, and I've asked them, um, so where did you learn about physical intimacy? So physical intimacy is going to be my euphemism for the word sex for the next several weeks. Where did you learn about physical intimacy? Did you learn it from your parents? Typically, no, I didn't learn it from my parents. And these, many, most of the time from my experience, uh, these are people who grew up in Christian homes. So they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s, they're in their 50s. They grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents. And most of the time, they didn't learn about physical intimacy from their parents. And that's alarming, that's shocking, but that's normative, unfortunately, because that's where they should be learning it, right? Uh, parents are supposed to be educating their children in the admonition and the love of the Lord and the truth of Scripture. And every human being is a sexual being. It's part of who we are, our very identity. So we have got to understand ourselves from God's point of view from Scripture. And it begins with Christian parents. And so because, and from my experience, the majority of the time that is neglected by parents out of fear, shame, or the way they were parented, or a lack of resources, lack of courage, or some wrong view about physical intimacy. The children aren't taught by the parents firsthand, so they're going to learn it somewhere. And if they're not going to learn it from their parents, they're going to learn it at school. And today, if you're learning it in the public school here in California, that's a disaster. Or if you go to a Christian school and not learn it from your parents, you're going to learn it from your friends, you're going to learn it in the locker room, you're going to learn it from the gutter, you're going to learn it from television, you're going to learn it from uh, YouTube, you're going to learn it on all the wrong places. And you're going to be trained in wrong thinking about a right, holy, biblical view of sexuality. So it's got to start with the parents. If you're a parent and you've neglected that, uh, you don't need to wallow in regret. You just talk to the Lord and ask Him for your help and He will be your sufficiency. It's not too late. Uh, to recover that, regardless of how old you are. Uh, but this is just kind of a word to parents who have children while they're young. If you're not doing it, you've got to be doing it now. And there's wholesome ways to do it and right ways to do it and the right perspective and the right amount at the right time. And there's a delicate balance there. But we've got to be honest with our kids. Um, so these folks that I typically talk to, uh, no, I didn't hear it about it in my house. My parents never talked about it. I uh, just didn't know. And so that's kind of how I was raised as well. I was raised in a moral home, but I never heard about physical intimacy from my parents I learned in other ways and other venues and those were all actually for me the wrong places to learn it so I had to be re-educated from the word of God when I became a Christian so that's ba important background to my approach my perspective on the next several chapters five six and seven it's at times Paul's going to get downright explicit and we need to deal with the words of scripture God wants us to know about it that's why it's here. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. This is going to be very profitable. We're talking about physical intimacy, sexuality, which is totally appropriate because uh, we live in a culture that's inundated with it. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. It's everywhere we go. can't get away from it. The proliferation of it from a wrong, worldly, twisted point of view, actually. Uh Recently, my wife and I have been watching the Andy Griffith show. And 
Leave it to Beaver and Dick Van Dyke. Those are from the 60s, early 60s. There is not a hint. There is not an illusion. There is not a nuance of compromise when it comes to sexual immorality in those shows. And it just kind of spoke of where the culture was, publicly speaking, at the time. It's just wholesome. And then I'm aghast of what where we are today. And you can become uh, hardened to it and desensitized very quickly based on what is on television today or just what's acceptable out in the public square of sexuality and a lack of wholesomeness. It's just, it is shocking. But it doesn't take long to become unshocked and to de- desensitize. Just look at what the main TV shows are on today and, and movies and everything else. Uh, it, it is horrifying. Uh, it is shameful. It is an affront to a holy God. And we need a wake-up call as the Christian community and as a Christian church. God has saved us from our old self and our old life and he has called us to be holy be holy for i am holy that needs to resonate and ring in our head and in our brain constantly and continually is an ongoing reminder as we're swimming against the tide in the world in which we live and it's getting worse at least from my perspective and in my lifetime it's going the culture is going the wrong way in terms of immorality, tolerating wickedness, is the, that's the word Paul uses. It's, it is wickedness. Immorality is wickedness. We'll get to that. So uh, let's go ahead and look at Paul, uh, Paul's four points of emphasis here now that we got a little context and background. Keep in mind that up to this point, if I were to summarize it, what was the Corinthian Christian's main problem? I would say... It's a word that Paul used about five times in Corinthians. They were puffed up. He keeps using that word. You are puffed up. You are puffed up. What does that mean? You are arrogant. You think too highly of yourself. You're puffed up. You're puffed up. You're puffed up. You are arrogant. Prideful. Overly self-confident. And when when you are that way, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it blinds you. And you can't see other things. You can't even see the obvious when you are blinded with self-conceit. And that was the Corinthians' problem. They are blinded by their arrogance. They are blinded from being puffed up. Their head is so big and swollen, they can't see straight, think straight, live straight. And Paul keeps saying that. You're puffed up, you're puffed up, you're puffed up. He said that in chapter 3, he said it in chapter 4, he says it in chapter 8, says it in chapter 13, and now he's going to say it again in chapter 5. You are puffed up and arrogant. And how do they get? why are they puffed up? They are puffed up from the knowledge they have attained. That's Paul says it explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up. And the problem was that the Corinthians thought that a litmus test for true spirituality was knowledge, spiritual knowledge or whatever knowledge they had. That's what they thought. The mark of true spirituality is not knowledge, but what? Holiness. Say it again. This is what the Corinthians didn't understand. The mark of true spirituality is not knowledge, but holiness. Or if you said obedience, that's another good word. But holiness is the contrast. So that's what Paul emphasized. That's his main point here. You are puffed up. The mark of true spirituality isn't knowledge like you think it is, but it's actually holiness, which you are totally neglecting in your own congregation, in your very midst, right in front of your nose. It is embarrassing. How, how shameful 
that this is going on. I heard about it from first-hand sources, whether it was Chloe's people or uh, other messengers that he had coming and going. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at it. Here's the problem. They had a problem of immorality in the church. Um, first, I want to give you the definition of immorality based on verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported. This means uh, I actually heard it from an eyewitness. Like I said, Chloe's people or other people. It is actually reported. And it's like, wow, I cannot believe this. I can't believe the report that this is happening in a church, in a Christian church, in a church where I was the pastor, in a church where there are Christians that I personally know and love and have discipled, and I know they're, they're a true Christian. He is not doubting their salvation. That is very important for us. Many times, and i just got to keep repeating this as Christians, when we see somebody else in sin, in compromise, immorality, a lot of times we rush to, ju- oh, they must not be a Christian. Paul doesn't do that. He is assuming all along in light of their divisiveness, their fighting, their arrogance, and now their sexual immorality that, no, they're Christians, at least most of them. And they are caught up in this, which tells us that Christians can get caught up in in just about every conceivable sin imaginable. Isn't that scary? But it's a reality. And so he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Now, the word I already said that the, the Greek word for immorality is porneia, where we get the Greek word or the English word pornography. Now, in English, pornography is very limited and refers to a very specific thing and usually refers to uh, written material of pictures that are illegitimate. That is not what porneia means in the Greek New Testament, the way Jesus used it, the way Paul uses it in the apostles. Porneia is a huge umbrella term. Porneia just simply means sexual immorality. And every conceivable violation of sexual purity falls under the umbrella of porneia. So porneia, big term. It just means illegitimate physical intimacy outside the context of marriage, whether it's with another person, several people, or with yourself. It is illegitimate sexual fulfillment outside the context of marriage. That is the word porneia, and that's how Paul uses it here. So examples of porneia could be uh, polygamy, could be adultery, could be self-gratification, could be homosexuality, could be bestiality, everything listed in Leviticus 18, all kinds of deviations regarding sexual behavior that are not accepted by God. Those all fall under the huge umbrella of porneia. And there's a specific kind of porneia that Paul wants to focus in on, on here that he can't believe is going on in the church and is being ignored. So he says it is actually reported there is porneia among you. Now, and that prepositional phrase is very important. It's among you, literally in your midst. In the church, it is public knowledge. Everybody knows about it. I got word from it here in Ephesus or wherever it was, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That's how public it is. And it's not being shut down or dealt with or rebuked. It it is among you. It is being accepted for whatever reason. Or it's being tolerated for whatever reason. So the definition uh, of pornea is sex outside of marriage. So that's your first blank there. Sex outside of marriage or physical intimacy outside of marriage in any way, shape, or form. And it's actually reported that there is this immorality going on in the church. And of such a kind, get this, as does not exist even among the pagans. This kind of uh, sexual deviancy is not even tolerated in the Corinthian culture, which was known 
for their sexual abominations. That was their reputation. Uh, prostitution, homosexuality, um, and all kinds of gross sexual compromise. This kind, which was what? that was going on in Corinth wasn't even uh, acceptable among the, the Romans who were pagans and the Greeks who were pagans. But it's going on in the church. An immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the pagans. What is it? Well, that someone has his father's wife. So what is this? That someone, some guy in the church, a member of the church, a professing Christian of the Corinthian church, is having, present infinitive, having, that's a carryover from the Old Testament of describing a marriage. When a man marries a woman, he has a wife. He takes a wife. He has her. He possesses her. That is his wife with an emphasis on physical or sexual intimacy with that person. So someone in the Corinthian congregation who is a man who is unnamed, who everybody knows about, who's a member of the church, is having his father's wife. So that's the sin of adultery and that's not what was uncommon among the Gentiles. The sin that was uncommon among the Gentiles is the incest. Incest. This was not tolerated in the Roman government at the time and in the Greek pagan culture at the time, at least not publicly. Cicero, the great orator and writer, we have writings of his in existence where he explicitly condemns incest and he is aghast at wherever he sees pockets of his existence because it goes against everything that is natural to humanity in his mind and he's not even speaking as a bible believing christian so this was one kind of relationship or sin that wasn't even commonplace it was taboo in their culture even in a lost pagan degenerate culture incest well, i ain't going there hey i'll do the adultery thing and the homosexual thing and the whatever else but i'm not going to do incest they just wouldn't do that it was considered the worst of the worst in terms of a Stigma and compromise. It also was absolutely considered a curse by the Jewish culture. The terminology that Paul is actually using is from Leviticus. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, verse. I want you to turn to Leviticus 20 because I want you to see it with your own eyes in the Mosaic Law. So in Leviticus 18, uh, Moses gives from God all these guidelines about physical intimacy, protecting the, the covenant of marriage and laws that correspond to it. And then he reiterates that again, Leviticus 20, and also in Deuteronomy. And if you're looking at uh, Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 11, this is a repeat and amplification of Leviticus 18. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, that's incest. That would be a son with his own blood mother or a son with a stepmother not related to him. He has uncovered his father's nakedness. Notice the Old Testament and Scripture routinely uses uh, euphemisms to protect um, the language and how it's communicated of very private and intimate matters, which is we should take note of that and implement that in the way we talk about physical intimacy. He has uncovered his father's nakedness. That doesn't mean he just pulled the clothes off or whatever. This is a euphemism for actual acts of physical intimacy and sex. So if there is incest, 
And if uh, a man is having his father's wife, his stepmother, still considered incest, both of them shall surely be put to death. Uh, Deuteronomy says it's a curse. It is a curse. And the entire congregation said, Amen, when Moses said that in Deuteronomy. We agree with that. Our culture is a believing community. We agree with that, Moses. Amen, that is what God said. We, we don't do that in our culture today. We can't even get churches to agree on what true biblical morality is or even a biblical definition of marriage. So it's insightful to read Deuteronomy where he goes through uh, rule by rule and law by law of what God has said and what God has defined. And with each one, the entire community of God's people is saying, Amen, Amen, we agree. And that's what they did on this one. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Wow. They were to be put to death? Really? Yeah. Either by being stoned to death. They'd go through a trial, and the judges would render a verdict. And if there was evidence and witnesses, uh, they would both be condemned to death. Stoned to death, burned with fire, on the spot. Why is that? Why was God so harsh? Why was God so unloving? Well, actually, God wasn't unloving. This was a very loving act of God because he was doing, trying to do a lot of things. He's trying to preserve uh, the purity of the congregation of Israel so it wouldn't spread like cancer and destroy them. This is a loving act from a holy God. It is loving at times to say no. It is loving at times to have discipline. It is loving at times to have drastic measures. So God is a loving God. Uh, this isn't a compromise with his character as a God of love. It's what was required. It was for the good of the community. It was good for the glory of God and who he was. It was for the good of the protection of the basic definition of marriage. So if someone committed incest in the camp in the community of the nation of Israel, they were to be, both of them, by the way, husband and wife, husband, or not husband and wife, the man and the woman together were both to be put on trial. And it says the both of them were supposed to be put to death, not just one of them. When you go to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, and these Pharisees or whoever, they bring this woman caught in adultery. She was caught in adultery, meaning with another man. Where is the guy? They didn't bring the man. So they're violating Old Testament Scripture because the both of them were to be stoned to death. So they're violating the Mosaic law. So that was a botched scenario and trial from the beginning. And Jesus knew it. It was a farce. You guys aren't following the rules. So the two of them together were to be condemned to death if incest was committed. <clears throat> so go back to 1 Corinthians. And Paul says, this is basic. Uh, this is basic to Scripture. This is basic to uh, sensibilities of humanity because you don't even have this going on in the Greek pagan secular culture of Corinth. Wow! How in the world can you, Corinthians, be allowing this in your church? Paul just, he, he can't believe it. But it needs and requires immediate action. So let's go on to the second one. After the definition is the, the denial. Why in the world was this Christian congregation allowing public incest to be going on in their local assembly? Why? That's number two, the denial. The denial of immorality. I think from the context, they were allowing it because just simply they were tolerating it, tolerating sin. If you're a Christian, it is wrong to tolerate sin when you know about it. If you're a church, it is wrong to tolerate sin no matter what its form, if, if you know about it. Christians are required to deal with sin, starting with ourselves and then those around you and the community around you. And there's a corporate responsibility as well to deal with sin in the midst of the church. 
And that's actually one of Paul's points of emphasis. Here, you've got this unbelievable, heinous, egregious, unheard of sin of incest going on. And it's between a man and a woman. And he keeps referring to this guy. Verse 5, he calls him someone. He doesn't give his name. And then in verse 2 in the middle, he calls him the one who did this. And then him, he never gives his name. As a matter of fact, Paul never directly addresses this guy. He is a professing Christian. He's a member of the Corinthian church. And not one time in this passage does Paul address him and say, Hey, dude, whatever your name is, you need to stop. He doesn't do that. Who is he reprimanding? He's reprimanding the community, the church. The church is responsible for this sin. The individual is responsible, yes. Even the lady, yeah, she's involved in sin too. But the corporate assembly is equally, the church is equally responsible for this sin, primarily because there's public knowledge about it. It's been allowed to go on publicly. It has been condoned and tolerated, if not endorsed. And so Paul is really reprimanding the entire local church for allowing this to go on. So uh, that's important to keep in mind for us as a local church of GBF of our 195 people. If there's a public knowledge about some compromise and gross sin and we don't deal with it and it's being ignored and it's being dismissed and everybody knows, and it's the elephant in the room. We're just all talking around it and over it and we're not dealing with it. We are all culpable. We are all responsible if we are all knowledgeable of it. There's a corporate responsibility to deal with it. And there's a corporate culpability for not dealing with it. That's what's happening with for example, say we had some gross financial compromise here at the church. Um, Pastor Cliff, whatever it is, you know, uh, wow, all of a sudden he's driving a, a car that cost $250,000. It's brand spanking new and blah, blah, blah. Where, whoa, where'd that come from? Uh, but anyway, it turns out and then there's compromise and everybody knows about it and then everybody's hush, hush. And well, you know, that'll stir up the pot if we try to address it and we try to confront, can't do that. You'll divide the church. People will get mad. Some of our big donors will leave. Influential people, blah, blah, blah. Those are reasons why people don't deal with head, uh, sin head-on in a church. Wrong reasons. And then compromise is allowed, it is tolerated, and it causes tremendous problems. And Paul's going to talk about what those problems are. So there's a corporate responsibility Corinthians need to take. There's a corporate responsibility all of us need to take when sin goes public. Uh, so what is the denial just they were tolerating it. That's verse two. You have become arrogant. You're puffed up. Now he's not saying this uh, in a new way. He's just carrying this over from what he said earlier. That you're arrogant. You're puffed up. You're arrogant. You're puffed up. Uh, you think you're all hot. You think basically you think you know every. You think you know more than me, the Apostle Paul, because seventy-five percent of you said uh, I like Apollos. I like Peter. Paul, we don't like you. So they are arrogant. So he's just continuing that theme. And he, what he's saying is. You guys think you are so intelligent and so knowledgeable and so you've got so much spiritual pride. It is ironic that you think you're kings, as he said last week in chapter 4, you reign as kings, as almighties in your local church, and you can't even see the grossest compromise of sin standing right in front of your face in your own church. How ironic is that? That is pathetic. That's what he's saying. You're, you're not all that knowledgeable and spiritual after all. If you were truly spiritual, then you'd truly be pursuing holiness. And if you were truly pursuing holiness and obedience, you certainly wouldn't allow this egregious sin to be going on in your church. But you are, therefore, you aren't what you say you are. You're totally blind. You're hypocrites. And he's confronting him. 
to expose it. And so that's why I said you become arrogant. You are arrogant to the core, and you can't even see this. And so you have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead. There are different words for crying, and there are different words for mourning, and also for feeling a sense of remorse or repentance. And this is a very specific word for mourning. Uh, it's a very deep kind of mourning. It's, it was typical when someone died. It was typical in the Old Testament Greek translation of um, a prophet calling God's people to repent for their gross sins and to take action in terms of turning away from their sins. So this is a word of repentance that requires action to it to follow it up. Kind of like John the Baptist uh, telling the Pharisees, show me fruit in keeping with repentance. So it, it's not just a feeling. It is a legitimate sense of remorse, intellectual remorse, following that emotional heartbreak coupled with action to rectify the problem. And they weren't doing that. They should have been doing, they should have been taking action, implementing church discipline, uh, dealing with this couple, especially the man who was involved as a member of the church, communicating clearly to the rest of the members, giving them a biblical perspective of how dangerous this is. And they weren't doing any of that. And Paul says, you should be broken hearted over this and taking action, and you're not. Common sense from a biblical point of view. And you have not mourned instead. So that had you been broken, had you dealt with it properly, diagnosed it from a biblical point of view, mourned and were taking action in light of this gross sin, then you would have been doing the right thing, which he says in the second part of verse 2, which would have been so that the one... The man who was a member and a professing Christian of the Corinthian church who was involved in incest and there was public knowledge of it, the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. This guy would have been removed from the church. In other words, he would have been disciplined biblically out of the church. And that's assuming that he would not repent anywhere along the way. That's what needed to happen. This needs immediate action. You've been tolerating it. This is unacceptable. He needs to be removed from the church and immediately right now. It is public knowledge, uh, which makes it uh, very dangerous to the whole church, corporately speaking. But also what makes it very dangerous to the corporate assembly is the nature of the sin, sexual sin. Sexual sin can be one of the most dangerous kinds of sin that can affect people. And that's why it is so dangerous. That's why it needs immediate action. Remove this man from your midst. That would have been the godly thing to do. But you haven't done that. So that's the denial. It's just tolerating it. They're not, it doesn't say anywhere that they're condoning it or that they've got some new theology that allows for this or that they're teaching or that this guy that's doing it is saying, now that I'm a Christian, I'm liberated and free in Christ and I can do whatever I want. And because I'm free in Christ, I have license to do whatever I want. That is not what's going on here. There's no theology behind it. It's just some knucklehead sinner in the congregation who was overcome with his lust. He got in a compromised situation. He is not convicted about it. He has no inclination to repent of it. It's become public knowledge. He's probably an influential member in this local church, and it's just being tolerated. And he probably hasn't given a second thought as to why he's doing it other than that it feels good. So we don't really know where this guy is coming from, but we do know that Paul doesn't challenge him directly he is telling there needs to be a corporate responsibility of managing this issue and doing it immediately. You've neglected that. That is wrong. You're putting the church at risk. You're putting God's reputation at risk. The, the unbelieving world is watching you, Christians. I mean, what do they see? The unbelieving world in that culture, they're looking at this Corinthian 
Christian church, and they're doing things that, man, we wouldn't even think of doing as unbelievers. And I thought, they, I thought those Christians lived on a higher plane of holiness and living and morality. I don't think so. And this is what many uh, Jews, the, the party of the circumcision, the legalistic Jews, accused Paul of. They, they accused him of allowing the Gentiles to get saved and become Christians and then just forget any kind of laws or restraints or inhibitions, and they can just do whatever they want and just uh, abuse their liberties in Christ and engage in all kinds of gross immorality. That's what Paul was accused of doing, abandoning the Mosaic law. That wasn't true. Paul didn't do that. But this guy being allowed to live the way he did would add fuel to the fire of people who condemned Paul illegitimately when they thought that about Paul. Oh, see, Paul, that's why I am not of the Paul party. This is probably one of those disciples of Paul. Letting them live footloose and fancy free with license, not dealing with sin. Abandoning the Mosaic law, and that's not what Paul thought, taught, or believed. Just the opposite is true. So there's a corporate denial. Uh, commentators are all over the map on, on why they tolerated this. And kind of the common denominator, is it's pretty clear from the context that the man is a professing Christian. That, that'll come clear at the end of chapter 5. The man is a professing Christian, the one who's committing incest. The woman involved is probably an unbeliever, or at least she is not a member of the Corinthian congregation. She's not being held accountable with church discipline at all. But the man is. So the man is a member of the Corinthian church. He's a professing Christian. Uh, he's involved with his stepmother. She's not a member of the Corinthian church. And so the discipline is zeroed in and enacted on that man for his individual, individual responsibility and also the church, their corporate responsibility. And they are in denial. And so people speculate, well, why were they denying it? Why were they tolerating it? Um, I don't know. It could have been that this guy was an influential person in the church. could have been that he was wealthy. could have been that the church met at his home. could have been that he was a big giver. could have been that he was one of the leaders. We don't know. But the bottom line is they're, they're tolerating. There's a fear there to take action for some reason. And people do that. Sometimes because of their reputation or their resources or the repercussions that we'll suffer. We take the right action. Fear of man is the bottom line. That's wrong. So let's go on to the next uh, couple of verses there, 3 to 5. Uh, the discipline. Paul says you need to enact church discipline. 3 to 5, he says, For I on my part, wow, you guys haven't done anything, but I already have as an apostle from a distance, and as the former pastor of this church and the one who founded this church, the one who preached the gospel. I have already taken action when I heard about this. I on my part, though absent, in body, but present in spirit. How is Paul present in spirit? He says it twice. I'm not with you, but I am with you. Well, he's present by virtue of the authoritative God-inspired scripture that he's writing. It is actually authoritative over their life as Christians that they must submit to. And they are all somehow mysteriously and spiritually connected to Jesus Christ by virtue of his resurrection. And every Christian is in Christ spiritually. And so somehow Paul is connected with the body of Christ uh, in an amazing kind of a way, and he's in their midst. So the authoritative word of God coming from the pen of Paul in his presence is hovering over them, calling them to accountability, calling them to action, but not just doing it because Paul said so, doing it because it's the right thing to do and doing it corporately. They need to be a part of the process of implementing church discipline. It can't just be spearheaded and meted out by Paul. He's not even there. And it's not just his responsibility. It's their church. It's in their midst. 
But anyway, Paul wants to get the uh, process started formally. He wants to remind them of church discipline and how to do it. Although absent in body and present in spirit, I have already judged him. I have already judged him. I've already made a judgment and rendered a judgment. Can you? That is an amazing statement. Paul says, I have judged this sinner. I've made a judgment. I have determined that he is guilty, that he's being sinful, that consequences need to be implemented. As a matter of fact, he needs to be kicked out of the church. He needs to be removed. That is his judgment. Wow, that's severe, Paul. That doesn't seem very loving. That's what he said. I have already acted. I already judged him. I already judged him. I already judged him. Boy, when I kept reading that, I said, all I could hear in my mind was that refrain that is so oft repeated from the world and in the church. Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge? Judge ye not, lest ye be judged. Judge ye not, lest ye be judged. Judge ye not, lest ye be judged. And then Paul says, I have already judged him. And then Paul says, and I'm calling you as a church to judge him as well. Ye yikes, really? What, what do we do about judging not lest you be judged and who are you to judge and who are we to judge? And I don't judge and I don't like to, I don't like confrontation and I don't like judging people and I don't, you know, who am I? You know, I'm just a weak sinner too. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Paul answers that question. I'll tell you who you are. I will remind you who you are, not individually, but corporately as the church of Jesus Christ. Therein lies your authority to judge. It's not who you are as an individual. It's who you are corporately. Most of the nouns that Paul's using are in the plural form here in this passage. Because he's speaking to the church. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge, Paul? Well, I'll tell you. I've already judged him and have made a determination that you guys need to follow through and implement. I have judged him who has so uh, committed this sin as though I were present, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And then the other phrase, with the power of our Lord Jesus. With the power of our Lord. Who am I to judge? It's not you. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is the authority to judge in the church. So they can judge this professing Christian of a compromiser who is apparently unrepentant and implement church discipline on him and remove him from the church in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the head of the church. Flip to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 in your Bible. And I'll just read that passage again. The way that Paul is, by the way, doing church discipline here is not the standard Matthew 18 fourfold process. When we say church discipline, I can think of at least three different ways to implement church discipline in the church. One is Matthew 18 with its very rigid, specific four steps and very procedural and tight protocol. Boom, 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 boom. That's one way. And then there's Titus 3 of a factious person who's publicly divisive. You're not dealing with him in a Matthew 18 way all the way through you kind of cut the process short man this guy's getting divisive and it's causing problems and the house is going to burn down we need to remove him there ain't four steps in that process there's like two or three and then there's this process of church discipline there there aren't four steps there aren't three there is an unacceptable egregious sin that it has public knowledge that is spreading like cancer that it's already known publicly and it needs to be dealt with publicly and immediately so it's kind of like one step of church discipline So there's different ways to implement church discipline, but the authority by which we do church discipline is the same and is on the foundation of the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, 15, where he says, uh, he gives the process of confronting a brother in sin. If he doesn't listen, then uh, two to three confront. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. Verse 17, uh, if he doesn't listen to church, uh, uh, treat him as a Gentile tax collector, remove him from the body. Well, what authority... Who are we to judge? Well, that's verse 18 and following. 
Jesus says, here's your authority to do that. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose shall be loose. So Jesus is saying to believers, especially in local churches, you have authority from heaven to implement church discipline when there's sin. Your authority comes from God. It comes from Jesus. It's delegated authority. Loosed, it comes down from heaven. Verse 19, again, I say to you that if two or three of you on earth agree about anything that they may two or three, this is talking about church discipline. This isn't talking about a prayer meeting. Two or three witnesses confronting sin have the authority from heaven to enact that uh, sinner accountable. So when two or three believers get together to discipline another believer, they have the authority from heaven and almighty God to do it. And it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. That's not talking about individual prayer, that I'm going to answer every prayer the way you want it prayed. God is promising that every time you do biblical church discipline, I will honor the process. Regardless of how the sinner responds, I will honor the process. And I'm granting you authority from heaven to do it. Verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst when church discipline is being implemented. That is the context. And that's true right here. We have the authority from God in the local church to do church discipline. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. In the name of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You need to implement this discipline in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's point number three, the discipline of immorality, immediate action. Uh, I've already committed him to the judgment. Uh, verse four, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, verse five, deliver such a one. So what is the judgment Paul has rendered? Well, I've, I have delivered him to Satan. And as a church, you need to deliver him to Satan. Does that mean deliver him to Satan? Well, it means the same thing that he said earlier when he said you need to remove him from your midst. Verse 2. He needs to be removed from your midst. And to deliver a sinner who's a professing Christian who's unrepentant, to deliver them to Satan means to remove them from your church through church discipline. It's the same thing. What you're doing is you're putting him outside the confines and the glory and the umbrella of protection of the local church and you're putting him as a citizen of the world, of the unbelieving world, where, where Satan is the God of this world, Second Corinthians 4, 4. It is his domain. You are subjecting that professing Christian who's a sinner to the wiles and the temptation and the vulnerabilities of satanic and demonic attack. And God can use Satan as a chastening agent on such a sinner to bring them to repentance. Isn't that amazing? And that's what he's saying here. Deliver such a one unto Satan. Anytime any professing Christian goes through Matthew 18 and gets to step four and they don't repent and then we remove them from our congregation and part of treating them as a Gentile is delivering them to Satan. All right. Hey, you don't want to be a part of the believing community anymore? Then go, go live in the world where you're not under the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of his church. That is the most dangerous place in the world to be. Especially if you're a professing Christian. And so this is what he's saying. By the way, in verse 5, if you have a New American Standard, you can scratch out the words, I have decided. Those aren't in the Bible. He's not saying he's decided. He's telling, he said, I already made a judgment. Now you need to do it. And he's saying, you need to deliver such a one to Satan. You need to get that guy out of your congregation. Deliver such a one to Satan, deliver him over the world, put him in the world, get him out of the church. For what purpose? To humiliate him, to shame him? No, no. For God's glory, for the testimony of the local church, for a clear picture of Jesus Christ being given to the, the world and unbelievers who are watching what you're doing, to preserve holiness in your congregation. 
to keep it spreading like cancer and also for the salvation of this sinner's soul, or at least repentance. If he's a believer, he's been so hardened and recalcitrant, man, he needs to go to the lowest low to be softened and to come back as the prodigal. So we're going to deliver him to Satan. Maybe he's not even a Christian, just a professing Christian. And Okay, fine. Then we're going to put him out in the world and he'll be subjected to all kinds of horror and temptations and sin and worldliness and life and compromise. Hopefully God will use that to break them so that they might repent and be saved. That is also at the heart of Paul's goal here because it's God's goal. I don't believe that when it says deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, and his isn't even in the Greek text, it's for the destruction of the flesh. could be his flesh, but specifically the flesh. The flesh. Galatians 5.24, write it down. Galatians 5. The flesh is sinful inclinations that we have by virtue of being born as sinners that are destroyed, killed, mortified the moment you become a Christian. That's Galatians 5.24. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, your flesh has been crucified with Jesus Christ. It has been killed once and for all. And so this guy's acting like an unbeliever. It may very well be that he is an unbeliever, so we're going to discipline him and set him outside the church and then so that he might be have his flesh crucified so that he actually might truly be saved. That's what Paul is talking about. The destruction of the flesh. This isn't talking about, so we're going to kick this guy out of the church and deliver him over to Satan so that he can physically die. That, that is not consistent with biblical theology and doesn't even make sense. Because it says at the end of verse 5, in order that for the purpose of that his spirit may be saved. That his spirit may be saved. So that this guy might become a legitimate, bona fide, born again, believing Christian. And it is very possible this guy did get saved. They did this, kicked him out, he repented. And then there's some good news in Second Corinthians where we think this guy got saved and was welcomed back into the fellowship. It's pretty awesome. God honored the church discipline process. Uh, and then finally, that's the, the, the discipline of the uh, sinner. And then number four, the danger the danger of immorality, it is all-consuming. It spreads like cancer and it spreads quickly. Paul uses the metaphor of leaven here. Leaven is not yeast. Leaven is like a little piece, a lump of dough that you pulled off of a big wad of dough and then you cook that dough and you make bread and then you use the little lump for your next new batch. You use it kind of like leaven, that little, I mean, uh, like yeast, but you use just a little lump, add it to the new uh, dough and it helps it rise. So, when you see the word leaven in the New Testament, it just means influence. Very highly influential. It can be either for good or for bad. And so Paul says in verses 6 through 8, this sin is cancerous. It is like leaven. This one guy's compromise with sexual sin can infect the entire church negatively like leaven. You need to cut it off. You need to deal with it like at the Passover feast in the days of Moses when God commanded all the Israelites eliminate all leavened bread from the house and the premises you are only allowed to have unleavened bread because we don't want any influence from your past life in the days of the egyptians to carry over into your new life and that's the analogy and metaphor that he uses from the old testament here and so verse six uh, on the danger of immorality says you're boasting uh in your ongoing arrogance and you're oblivious to other sins is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump they didn't they were ignorant you think you're so smart and you're boasting, yet you're tolerating this leaven that could potentially destroy your church and the reputation of God in the community. As a result, verse 7, he says, clean out the old leaven. What does that mean? Get rid of this guy. Confront him. Remove him. 
deliver him to Satan. By the way, 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul said he delivered Hymenaeus and another guy to Satan, professing Christians, same thing, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Paul didn't want them to die physically. He said they were disciplined. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. See, so that you can be pure. This is gross immorality. You need to stay pure as a church because after all, you are in fact unleavened. You've been saved by Jesus Christ. He is the Passover lamb. All Christians are pure in their position by virtue of knowing Jesus Christ. So act like who you are. Christians are supposed to be holy, live holy. That's what he's arguing here. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. He died for you. He died for your purity. Live a pure life. Get rid of this guy. Verse 8, therefore, do the right thing. Discipline this guy. Remove him from the church. After you do that, you've been obedient to God, and then it's time to celebrate. Not yourselves, but holiness unto God. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast and celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins as the Passover lamb. Not with old leaven, not with gross behavior from your old lifestyle nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness and sexual immorality or sexual compromise is considered wickedness but rather let's celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth know the truth and the truth will set you free submit to the truth and the truth will set you free the truth in this situation is that they need to deal with church discipline regarding this compromise moral purity in their church and they've got to overcome this blinding pride that has kept them from seeing that let me close with this we saw leviticus 18 do we believe in the whole bible or just some of the bible that'd be kind of an interesting survey if i went around each person said so do you believe in the whole bible or just some of the bible are you one of those new testament believers only people no i believe in the whole bible pastor cliff oh do you believe in leviticus 18 11 yeah i don't know what it says but i believe in it really well, here's what it says, that if uh, a man lies with his father's wife, he is, that's not right. Well, I agree with that. And he's to be stoned to death. Oh, I don't know if I agree with that. Houston, we have a problem. I thought we believed in the whole Bible. Why well, believe in the whole Bible? I believe Leviticus 18.11 is still true. I believe that people who commit incest uh, deserve death and should be killed. I will say it again. I believe that people who commit incest uh, are sinning against God, deserve death, and should be killed with the death penalty. I believe that. That's what Scripture clearly teaches. God believes that too. God believes sinners like that should die immediately. And God believes that about all sin. The wages of sin is death. I believe that every sin is committed, that person deserves death. No matter what it is, a little white light deserves death just as much. And God believes that as well. But God also loves his creation. And out of a heart of love, he came to preserve his holiness and the lives of his sinful people by coming down into this world in the form of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came down here as the God-man, took on a human body, even though he was eternal God. He lived a perfect life for 33 years. He came for one purpose, and that was to go to the cross, to be executed, to be killed for the sin of the world. Jesus died on the cross to be executed for this incestuous man. And because Jesus died and paid the penalty of the death he deserved, that incestuous man can be totally forgiven of all of his sin. Isn't that amazing? That is the good news. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. So no matter what you, sin you have committed or any sin that I have committed, 
Every single one of us deserves death immediately from a holy God. God knows that. He loves us. He sent his son. Jesus died for your sin, if you believe that. He died in your place. So somebody has already been executed for that sin. And it was 2,000 years ago, and it literally happened. It was a literal death. It satisfied a holy God. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to save you from your sin and to thank Him for dying for all of your sins and to be, for being executed, for absorbing the wrath of the Holy Father, then Jesus, He will forgive you on the spot for every sin that you have ever committed in your life and He will put His Spirit in you. He will love you, adopt you into your family. You are secure in Him for all eternity and you don't have to worry about any of your sins from a legal point of view ever again. Isn't that good news? That is good news to go to lunch on. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, even when we get to difficult subjects like the one today that we, we couldn't even thoroughly address. But uh, thank you for being real with us, Lord, as sinners and compromises we walk through this fallen world. Thank you most of all for the solution that every sinner potentially has in the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ who willingly came to seek and to save sinners. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for those whom we've already saved in this congregation and they know you. And Just give us great freedom today and help us to rejoice and celebrate in the, the Passover lamb that you are. And God, anybody that doesn't know you yet, hasn't been forgiven of their sin, we pray that you would continue to impress upon their conscience with your Holy Spirit convictions, a conviction about their sin, but also to woo them to yourself, knowing they could embrace the good news that you have to offer as well, that they might be saved, totally forgiven, regardless of how gross or compromising or heinous their sins may have been in their past life. You can forgive it all, for your grace is greater than all our sin, and for that you deserve the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.